Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project is brought to you by Poland is Not Yet Lost, which actually has not been found yet because it's not due to be released until September, but it's on the way for all patrons of the $5 level and above. If you would like to hear the lesser-known story of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the 18th century, then make sure you head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails in time for the official launching of this project in September. By pledging $5 or more a month, you'll be able to have access to this very fascinating story, which will be running for several years as I get my PhD done and dusted. It's something I've been looking forward to doing for a long time, and if you remember back to the old days of retro when diplomacy fails, launching a series on Polish history was one of the first goals I had for Patreon and for when diplomacy fails, and once we hit that $500 goal... I made it my mission to decide what era of Polish history you guys wanted to see. And for some reason, you voted for perhaps the most depressing period of Polish history. So for that reason, not because I'm a glutton for punishment, but because you guys voted for it, the 1700s, the eventful 18th century, is where our focus on Poland will reside. I hope you'll join me for that. But until then, history friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 78. Today is the 21st of June 2019, and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. When examining the Paris Peace Conference, one is struck by how uneventful some periods of the peace process were, and how incredibly dense others managed to be. It was as though the big three saved everything to the last moment, or kicked the can down the road so often, that when they were faced with getting down to business, they found that several cans awaited their attention at the same time. The month of June, or more precisely the week from the 16th to the 23rd of June, is a perfect example of this trend. On the 16th of June, after several weeks of deliberations, 
the Allies communicated their decision to the Germans. These were their final peace terms, and they would not get any other deal. On the 23rd of June, a few hours shy of the expiration of the deadline, the Germans indicated their acceptance of the terms. What followed from the 23rd to 28th of June was a strange period of limbo, where the conference was effectively viewed as over, the German treaty solved, and the only thing in need of resolution was Germany's challenge in finding men to sign the treaty. Periods of intense activity were followed, again by periods of intense inactivity, as a holiday atmosphere entered Paris and Versailles, and premature celebrations enabled several delegates to begin their holidays. That period of intense activity, however, had been intense indeed. Between the 16th and 23rd of June, virtually every day contained a critical event. In fact, on this day 100 years ago, two events in particular stand out. The first was the forgotten struggle of the German Republic to form a government after its coalition had resigned in deadlock at the question of whether to sign the peace treaty or not. The second was the more infamous decision by those in the German Admiralty to scuttle their ships, interned at Scapa Flow on the Orkney Islands. As we will see here, this latter decision, while often pinpointed as another stop-off on the road to the treaty, is rarely placed in its proper context, and its consequences are rarely considered in their full extent. Today I hope to change that, and also to explain the situation on the ground in Weimar, as the Council of Four met an incredible five times. Well, Pansy, we have met the High Seas fleet at last. It has been misty all day, and that rather impaired the spectacle, as we could never see more than about half a dozen big ships, and a dozen or so of the destroyers at one time. This was how Admiral Sir David Beatty described that forgotten event of the 21st of November, 1918, when the German High Seas fleet, consisting of 70 vessels, was handed over to the British on the Scottish coast off the Firth of Forth. Altogether, he considered it an unutterably dull and monotonous day for most of those involved. But that didn't mean that Beatty and his crews hadn't been prepared for anything the Germans might try. In fact, the tension was high as Rear Admiral Ludwig von Reuter led his fleet into the British captivity and lowered the Imperial German flags by sunset. The flags were not to be raised again without the permission of the British, but this was only a minor detail amidst a score of others that governed this curious chapter in Anglo-German naval relations. It was like the ultimate humiliation for a German admiralty which had once striven to match the British mastery of the seas. 20,000 German sailors were soon reduced to 2,000, and bi-monthly deliveries of food, alcohol and cigarettes from Germany to the sailors kept them nourished on their floating prisons. Something that characterised the arrangement from its beginning in late November was uncertainty. It could not be known how long the captivity would last, or what the precise fate of these vessels would be. Several months later, rumours were the only thing that Rear Admiral Reuter had to go on, but the rumours weren't good. On the 11th of May, Reuter learned of the delivery of the treaty to Ulrich von brockdorff Ranzau and that treaty's terms. It was a devastating blow for he and his men, yet no orders were received at all from home. He and his men would have to remain stranded in the anchorage they despised until such an order came. Left to his own devices, Admiral Reuter began to imagine what his options would be. As far as he was concerned, there were three options. 
resistance, negotiation, or surrender. In the event that the German delegation and government refused to sign the terms, the war would be back on, and thus these ships would have to be kept out of the hands of the enemy. It would be treason to allow the British to seize them, and they would have to be destroyed since they did not have the capacity to defend themselves. On the other hand, in the event that negotiations were entered into, Reuter imagined that the ships might be used as a bargaining chip. They would be handed to the British in return for British concessions on the size or structure of Germany's army. In Reuter's experience, the army always came first, as demonstrated by the recent handover of the German submarine fleet, some 200 strong. Reuter could not countenance handing these vessels over, now swollen to 74 after some additional battlecruisers had joined them, even if the order came from home to do so. The third possibility was unconditional acceptance or surrendering the ships. Some German press reports he had seen convinced Reuter that this was inconceivable. It could only be contemplated on receipt of a direct order from Germany. Yet this belief did not bring him easier sleep. Reuter tortured himself with questions of what if, not willing to believe that the worst could be on the horizon, but also unwilling to lull himself or his men into a false sense of security in case swift action was required. To Reuter and his subordinates, there was the delicate question of whether the peace terms, once accepted by Germany in whatever form, came into effect on signature or on ratification in Weimar. Reuter's greatest fear was that the British would act preemptively and seize the ships on signature without waiting for ratification, and he decided on his own responsibility that such action on their part could be met in only one way, scuttling. Scuttling was the safest way to prevent the British getting their greedy paws on German ships, but as Reuter's pondering of his options shows, it was not far from his thoughts. Scuttling was in fact a fear of the British too, their guard ships standing by had orders and instructions on how to prevent a scuttling, but they also could not move without an official order from London. As it became known that the deadline for German acceptance of the terms was the 23rd of June, the British Admiralty on standby became increasingly antsy as no word on how to approach the difficulty was received. In Reuter's camp, on the other hand, that Rear Admiral had made the decision to scuttle his ships as early as the 17th of June the day after the German counter-proposals had been answered in the negative by the Allies. This must have been the signal for Reuter to act. He predicted the handling of the vessels over to the British upon the expiration of the 23rd, and fearing British preemptive seizing of the ships before that date. This event was just as intolerable to Reuter in mid to late June 1919 as it had been in late November 1918. As far as he was concerned, it would have been the ultimate dishonour to have handed the ships over without any kind of fight, but thanks to the minimal communications from home, Reuter was left somewhat adrift on how exactly to proceed. If Reuter was adrift, then the Allies were also left in something of a bind over the fate of these 74 German warships. As per the terms of the armistice negotiations, the Germans were instructed to cease submarine warfare, which they did by the 20th of October 1918. After that, and after the last-ditch effort of the German Admiralty to strike a blow at the British collapsed with the morale of Germany's sailors, the question of what to do with Germany's ships began to enter into the lexicon of Allied debate. The problem was multi-layered. The German ships were some of the most sophisticated, technologically advanced in the world. In the right hands, they could be used immensely effectively, provided the Germans handed them over with minimal fuss, of course. 
On the other hand, the most obvious candidate to receive the vessels, the British, didn't necessarily want them. Britain enjoyed naval supremacy by late 1918, and while the United States was soon moved to challenge this, meeting that challenge was not felt sufficiently worth it to argue for the retention of Germany's 74 warships, nor for shouldering the costs involved in maintaining these vessels. The Royal Navy had begun its demobilisation procedures and was in no fit state to absorb Germany's ships without significant additional expansion or investment. Lloyd George was finding it hard enough to maintain divisions in France and Belgium. There was plainly little money remaining to achieve the dream of some admirals in the Royal Navy by nearly doubling the size of Britain's most famous military institution. That begged the question then, if Britain wasn't going to advocate for the straightforward solution of taking the ships into their permanent care, then what should be done with them? Doling them out among the Allies was an option, but the British, predictably, were not thrilled by the prospect of bolstering the size of the French, Italian or American navies. One idea was to tow the vessels into the middle of the Atlantic, and in a ceremony of grand symbolism and significance, sink the German boats then and there, while national anthems of the victorious nations blared out. Notwithstanding how insulting this would have been to German honour, the idea struck Woodrow Wilson as inadequate. He floated the idea of using the ships, even more symbolically, as an instrument of peace by handing them to the League of Nations. The French and Italians, on the other hand, saw these ships as the spoils of war, akin to the seizing of guns on the Western Front, which could be used to show their populations what had been practically gained. But disagreement reigned, nonetheless. What they could agree on was that the Germans would not get the ships back. Among the 440 articles of the peace treaty was the confirmation which the Germans had feared. As Dan van der Vaat wrote, All the interned ships were to be handed over, together with another 52 torpedo boats. All warships under construction were to be dismantled. Germany was to be left with a navy of no more than 15,000 men and 1,500 officers. She was to be allowed no more than six battleships of a maximum of 10,000 tonnes, and six cruisers of up to 6,000 tonnes, 12 small destroyers of up to 800 tonnes, and 12 small torpedo boats of up to 200 tonnes. The navy was not allowed submarines or aircraft. The military installations and harbour at Heligoland were to be dismantled. Germany's naval capabilities were being dismantled from an early stage in the peace negotiations. We have seen that the armistice prioritised the secession of submarine warfare and the handover of 200 U-boats. Evidently, the Allies anticipated that the Germans would be capable of striking back with these weapons in the near future if they were not restrained. The terrifying vision of starvation and blockade in the Second World War illustrated the truth of these fears, but the years leading up to the First World War had certainly helped to create a sense of begrudging respect in the mind of the British Admiralty for the German tenacity in naval construction. This recent history should also be considered when examining the Allied policy. The British had never been this threatened in the naval sphere since Napoleon had massed soldiers on the French coast a century before. It was imperative that Britain protect herself by crippling Germany's ability to wage war at sea in the near future, much like France sought to do the same on land. Lloyd George, as we'll recall, was loudly critical of the freedom of the seas notion during the armistice negotiations. Britain's survival, the Prime Minister claimed, depended on her freedom of action at sea in wartime, and this freedom of action included the right to blockade her foes. 
Lloyd George managed to persuade House that he was compromising, but the Prime Minister essentially got what he wanted, only to loudly oppose French efforts to guarantee its security in the Rhineland. That Germany had had the power to threaten both Britain and France in its relevant spheres demonstrated that new empire's potential. There could be no guarantee in 1919 that Germany would not attempt this coup again, and understanding this, German officials were in no sense expecting the full return of their fleet. What some of her senior naval personnel resented, though, was their inability to make one last stand. German honour at sea, they believed, had been compromised, and there had to be a remedy found for this crisis. Considering the Allied disagreements over what to do with the German ships, and the disposition of Rear Admiral Reuter towards scuttling in the name of German honour, unless he was directly ordered not to do so, it would seem that the infamous act of destroying as many as 50 such vessels on the sunny morning of the 21st of June was something of a perfect storm. As far as Reuter was concerned, the moment for action was imminent, and his order went out on the 17th of June to his subordinates. It read, It is my intention to scuttle the ships only if the enemy should attempt to place himself in possession of them without the consent of our government. Should our government concur with the surrender of our ships and the peace conditions, then the ships will be given up to the lasting shame of those who put us in this situation. Ruder would only refrain from scuttling, in other words, if the German government notified him to the effect that they had agreed to unconditionally accept the peace terms. This leads to another consideration which must be entered into the debate as well, the role which miscommunication may have played in the debacle. Once the Allies delivered their rejection of the German counter-proposals on the 16th of June, they attached a five-day deadline, which meant that the German government had until the 21st of June to comply. As it happened, the government, led by Chancellor Philip Scheidemann, elected to resign on the 20th of June rather than accept the unacceptable, and a new government was formed the next day on the 21st. This government requested more time, and the deadline was extended until 7pm on the 23rd of June. However, these disruptions at home do not seem to have been detected by Admiral Reuter. Nobody, in other words, seems to have told the anxious Admiral in the morning of the 21st of June that the deadline was due to... Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
expire in two days rather than mere hours. With no word from home and the deadline, he believed, fast approaching, Reuter anticipated that Scheidemann's government had decided to resist. Indeed, Scheidemann himself would have resisted, but deadlock paralysed his cabinet, which forced his exit as we know. This was the version which Reuter stuck to after the event, at least. He vehemently denied the accusation thereafter that he had attempted to torpedo the peace negotiations or to heighten tensions in the 11th hour. Instead, he claimed he was fulfilling the expressed wishes of the Admiralty from previous months, believing that he was destroying the German fleet to prevent it falling into British hands once the war resumed. What followed appeared to Reuter as a self-fulfilling prophecy, as a British battle squadron consisting of five battleships and smaller attendant vessels sailed out of Scapa Flow for exercises on the morning of the 21st of June. Having spent an anxious 20th of June gradually deciding to act on the basis that the following day represented the likely resumption of the war, or, more humiliatingly, the complete handover of Germany's fleet, Reuter felt compelled to put his plan into motion. As the process of destroying the fleet began, Reuter may have felt vindicated once the British staffs began firing on Reuter's crew and forcibly intervening. To Reuter, this could well have seemed like the behaviour of a wartime enemy. Of course, though, this was merely the panicked reaction of a jailer whose prisoner decided to defy his containment. The British had feared this act as much as Reuter had feared Britain's sudden seizing of his vessels, yet they had proved mostly unable to stop Reuter's men from inflicting the worst of their damage once the destruction began. With four innocuous words sent to the fleet just after 10.30am on the 21st of June, Make, paragraph 11, confirm, the news spread among the fleet. According to the order of the 17th of June, these four words were code for scuttle. The time had finally come. The day was one of scuttling, but it took more than an hour for the process to begin, largely due to the unexpected nature of the message, the cumbersome communications equipment in use, and the presence of several British water tank vessels supplying his flagship during that morning, which must have been a bit awkward. Not until 16 minutes after midday did the first vessel, Friedrich der Gross, go down. Incredibly, an unlikely group of witnesses to the day's events were destined to be 400 school children who had set off from the Stromus Higher Grade School that morning at 9.30am and made their way at a leisurely pace towards the imprisoned German fleet. Unbeknownst to these school children or their teachers or their guides, they were soon to have a front row seat to one of the most infamous actions of the peace process. On board their ship, the Flying Kestrel, the children watched the scene play out before them. Many years later, one of the children recalled, I don't think anyone noticed anything peculiar on the outward journey at all. Some of the big ships were taking on supplies from boats alongside, and we did see one or two flags going up on the destroyers. Indeed, as the order to scuttle became more widely known, the flag signalling the attack was raised on many German ships. Fortunately, the flying Kestrel was not a target, and the German sailors were too preoccupied with destroying their ship to actually attack anyone. It was also the case that, owing to the spread-out nature of the German fleet, the order to scuttle didn't reach everyone all at once, which enabled one school child, later a teacher at that school, to recall the incredible scene in 1940, saying, At long last, we came face to face with the German fleet, some of them huge battleships that made our own vessel look ridiculous. The sailors thumbed their noses at us. 
Our teacher tried anxiously to explain that perhaps we would do the same if we were prisoners of war, being stared at by a crowd of gaping schoolchildren. We ought to feel sorry for those poor men who could no more help being Germans than we could help being Orcadians. My friend, Rangvald St. Clair, who was always so smart, said he only felt sorry he hadn't brought his catapult. Some of the Germans sat playing mouth organs. In fact, this thumbing of their noses by the Germans may well have been a final act of defiance before the more daring and dangerous act was undertaken. The time between the calm and all hell breaking loose was fleeting indeed, but it wasn't long before the children started to notice that something was seriously amiss with these ships that they were watching. They were at all sorts of crazy angles, one child remembered. Some rolled onto their sides, others went down stern first or by the bow. Then they were in sight of the capital ships, and Mr. Taylor, first a pupil and then a teacher, continued his incredible story in 1940, recalling, Suddenly, without any warning and almost simultaneously, these huge vessels began to list over to port or to starboard. Some heeled over and plunged headlong, their sterns lifted high out of the water and pointing skywards. Others were rapidly settling down in the ocean, with little more showing than their masts and funnels, while out of the vents rushed steam and oil, and air with a dreadful roaring hiss, and vast clouds of white vapour rolled up from the sides of the ships. Sullen rumblings and crashing of chains increased the uproar as the great hulls slant giddily over and slide with horrible sucking and gurgling noises under the water. The proud vessels slowly disappear with a long, drawn-out sigh. On the surface, all that remains is a mighty whirlpool dotted with dark objects swirling round and round, many of them drawn inwards until they too sink from sight. Now the sea is turning into one vast stain of oil which spreads gradually outwards, as if the lifeblood of some ocean monster, mortally wounded, was oozing up from the seabed. And as we watched, awestruck and silent, the sea became littered for miles round with boats and hammocks, life belts and chests, spars and matchwood, and among it all hundreds of men struggling for their lives. Suddenly the air was rent by the lusty cheering of long lines of sailors drawn up on the deck of one of the largest German ships. They were bidding farewell to a sister ship, whose decks were now under water. It must have been an incredible thing to be in the middle of. Eyewitnesses recalled that the younger children were understandably terrified and had to be taken below the ship and comforted or distracted by teachers and older pupils. As the historian Dan van der Vaat wrote, The screams and cries from the flying kestrel composed a spontaneous and bizarre keening at the graveside of the German navy. Many eyewitnesses remember the unnatural churning of the sea caused by the sinking of the ships and the great gouts of air which broke surface afterwards. Others recall the weird and terrible noises the ships made in their death throes, roaring, groaning and hissing. The story of the flying kestrel, which was hosting all the children, did not stop there, for as she passed by one of the final capital German ships, the Baden, it became plain that there was a chance to save her, and thus this boat of school children roared to the shore, where it unloaded the children, and then returned to the scene. The flying kestrel ended its experience of the 21st of June, towing a German warship to the beach, where its efforts to sink were frustrated. And it wasn't just people in the thick of it that remembered the scene. Isaac Moore was the sub-postmaster of the town of Hoy, which overlooked the harbour. 
Moore had seen the Germans arrive on the 21st of November, and now he would be present seven months later when the story was brought to an abrupt end. Moore recalled, Somebody came into the shop and said there was something fishy happening in the flow. I walked down the road about three miles to a high point with a good view. By the time I got there, the ships were in all stages of sinking at the same time. It was just after lunchtime. The Germans were launching boats, and there were drifters and cutters all over the place, rushing about everywhere. I saw the flying kestrel come racing back to unload the school children, and then it rushed back again. Then our big ships and destroyers came charging back into the flow at full speed. By 1pm on the 21st of June, the British had cottoned on to what was happening. German ships reported to be sinking, was the message communicated among the ships which had only recently been engaged in exercises. Then, amidst the commotion, shooting started, largely with small arms fire, and directed towards those Germans who could be reached. The intention was to intimidate the Germans into stopping their action, but inevitably in the confusion and frustration, casualties were suffered. Nine Germans died and 16 were wounded by the time the day's events came to a halt. It was a sublime and yet so deeply sad feeling to see virtually nothing left of our beautiful fleet, wrote one of the German sailors from a prisoner of war camp a few days later. The damage had been done, literally, and the British had proved terminally unable to stop the German action. When Rear Admiral Reuter was brought aboard the Revenge and accused of treachery by the British Admiral on board, he denied the accusation and was subsequently amazed when he was informed that peace had been prolonged for two days. Reuter evidently had acted on the belief that war was soon to be reignited. At the very least, Reuter's beliefs were consistent with the British tendency to keep the Germans in the dark. In addition, it is also doubtful that when faced with such a monumental challenge, the British could have done more to stop the disaster and unfolding tragedy. Morale, it was later recorded, had never been so high among the German sailors, who, after so many months of inaction, finally felt like they had a chance to stick it to the enemy. The British Admiral, who faced down Admiral Reuter and his shivering comrades on board the Revenge, was not willing to roll over without making a plain who the bad guy was, though. At the end of the day, when all of this infamy had taken place, in the evening of the 21st of June, Admiral Reuter and his senior officers were lined up to face their British counterparts and the Royal Marines, as Admiral Fremantle, representing Britain, appeared on deck with a piece of paper in his hand and proceeded to read from it. It was a commentary on what had happened that day, and it presented several damning challenges to Reuter's actions. Admiral von Reuter, I cannot permit you and your officers to leave naval custody without expressing to you my sense of the manner in which you have violated common honour and the honourable traditions of seamen of all nations. With an armistice in full operation, you recommended hostilities without notice by hoisting the German flag in the interned ships and proceeding to sink and destroy them. You had informed my interpreter that you considered the armistice had terminated. You had no justification whatever for that assumption. You would have been informed by me of the termination of the armistice and whether the representatives of your nation had or had not signed the Treaty of Peace. Indeed, letters in readiness to send to you to that effect, as soon as I had received official intimation from my government, were written and signed. Further, can you possibly suppose that my squadron would have been out of harbour at the moment of the termination of the armistice? By your conduct you have added one more to the breaches of faith and honour of which Germany has been guilty in this war. Begun with a breach of military honour in the invasion of Belgium, it bids fair to terminate with a breach of naval honour 
You have proved to the few who doubted it that the word of the new Germany is no more to be trusted than that of the old. What opinion your country will form of your action, I do not know. I can only express what I believe to be the opinion of the British Navy, and indeed of all seamen except those of your nation. I now transfer you to the custody of the British military authorities as prisoners of war, guilty of a flagrant violation of the armistice. Reuter's reply to this was brief and defiant, claiming that the responsibility was with he and he alone, and that he believed a British officer would have acted similarly. The British were embarrassed, but there's something in the rebuke which Admiral Fremantle delivered regarding the notion that this act undermined the Weimar Republic's claims to an honourable policy, which was a break from the past, from the past crimes, of Imperial Germany. To Admiral Fremantle, and soon to many in the Allied delegations, this act demonstrated plain as day that Germans, no matter the government, would act dishonourably and opportunistically if it suited them. Above all, the Allied anger at the scuttling of the fleet completely removed whatever remote possibility might have remained for compromise on the peace terms. How could the Big Three moderate its terms now, after the Germans had so publicly acted in defiance of their authority? This belief is palpable in the reaction of those Allied officials on the ground in the Paris Peace Conference, who were amused, outraged, embarrassed, or all three depending on their nationality. Coming a bit late to the party, House wrote in his diary on the 23rd of June that The Germans are not unlikely to refuse at the last moment, or to do something to delay the signing. The sinking of the German fleet at Scapa Flow and their signified intention of sending only one unimportant and unknown representative here to sign the peace is indicative of temper and unreliability on the German part. Everyone is laughing at the British Admiralty. It is all to my liking, as I wanted the boat sunk. The French are indignant and blame the British for not being more careful. Thus, House judged how the Germans would react to the expiration of the deadline on the 23rd of June, based on their previous behaviour at Scapa Flow. They had done something treacherous then, so it was entirely within them to do something treacherous again. Others were less thoughtful about what it said about the Germans, and more concerned with what it said about their own country, as Harold Nicholson wrote on the 22nd of June. Rather shamed by the sinking of the German fleet, it makes us look foolish and worse. After all, we had rather pressed that the fleet should be sunk in any case. They will now think that we did it ourselves. The naval people will say that it was the fault of the politicians for insisting that the ships should be interned only and not surrendered. The French think we have betrayed a trust. In fact, we look fools and knaves. The impact was considerable in the long and short term, for it represented a further black mark against the Weimar Republic, who were represented by the German sailors at Scapa Flow, whether they accepted it or not. Some 400,000 tons of shipping had been lost, but so had something else. At the bottom of the Scottish Sea was a major source of potential conflict between the British and Americans. Disagreement over what to do with the ships had not gone away with the passage of time, but this German act had provided the answer, and it had refocused attention onto the German menace. Neither man would ever admit it, but Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson would come to see Scapa Flow as something of a blessing in disguise. The product of the German shipbuilding program, which had so soured Anglo-German relations, would now have no opportunity to also sour Anglo-American relations. Embarrassing though the incident was, the event itself was largely forgotten, even though the consequences didn't fade away. 
The new German government under Chancellor Gustav Bauer would face an uphill battle if they wanted any last-minute Allied concessions to follow. This did not seem to dissuade them, though. A majority in the Reichstag were in favour of accepting the peace treaty, if only Articles 227 to 231 were dropped, in other words, those dealing with the so-called war guilt issue. This was an impossible demand, but it was pushed for perhaps in full knowledge of the Allied answer. It is entirely possible that Chancellor Bauer believed his colleagues would only accept the peace once it was hammered home once again just how intractable the Allied position was. Thus, Sunday, the 22nd of June, 1919, opened with this incredible resolution. The government of the German Republic is ready to sign the peace treaty without thereby acknowledging that the German people are the responsible authors of the war and without accepting Articles 227 to 231. This began what was to be an anxious all-day and all-night session of the Reichstag, a feverish period of work and a countdown which, seriously this time, would mean the resumption of war on its expiration. By that point, though, the choice was plain according to the Allies. Scant mercy would be spared for the singers of ships. They would have to accept the unacceptable, or the Germans would face even worse music. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.